Welcome to RoyCast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Kate. Hello, everyone. And Gabby. Hi, guys. RoyCast listeners, we don't know where you're listening from, uh, but all of us hosts are here in the States, where it's the holiday season. Uh, We're thinking of family. We're thinking of our extended families, our chosen family. And in that spirit of the season we're back with somebody who has appeared on this program before you heard him on the season two episode four safe room our discussion from that season we are thrilled to have with us once again our friend jeremy moncho hey jeremy how's it going it's going all right hey gang uh second time long time uh yeah yeah uh happy to be back good to connect that's that's what that's what the season's all about even though i'm i'm canadian and it's it's not not my thanksgiving but uh that's right. Every uh, every episode of Succession is an unofficial sort of Thanksgiving episode, right? You're with your family. You don't really want to be. That's kind of the, the vibe of the thing. <laughs> I can hear the Canadian accent now, Jeremy. So, boy, was I wrong. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm glad it's coming out. I, I'm glad the Canadian's leaping out. Yeah, we're getting the, uh, the fully branded Jeremy experience. So, Jeremy, uh, I always enjoy seeing your sort of threaded uh, watches and rewatches of uh, TV and film online and uh, I know you recently just caught up with this season of succession and I just wanted to get your kind of general impressions how has uh, how did this look for you especially watching a few episodes kind of back to back which I know is the experience a lot of people had coming into this season and catching up and binging the first couple for the first time how does this season look uh, with a few episodes piled together yeah, it's interesting because this is one of the uh, shows I, you know, prefer not to binge. Uh, thankfully, we don't have to watch it in some, you know, uh, you know, nightmarish streaming context. But uh, you know, uh, the way work piled up, I just had to catch a few all at once. Uh, and uh, in seeing it from that scope, uh, you see the kind of design of the season maybe a, a, a tiny bit more uh, than it does on the week to week level. And what really struck me is, is how how much of this is returning to the first season uh, and how much of the third season is playing back that uh, story of the first season and the themes and the concerns and, uh, and the uh, general vibe of the first season, but just with the context of everything we've learned about these characters in the time since uh, and with the, the uh, scope and stake of it uh, even more heightened now. That we really know, uh, you know, what what these characters are, who these characters are. Yeah. That's fascinating. I can't, I can't wait to dive a little bit more into that. You know, watching uh, this episode in the last few weeks, I'm continually struck by how much stuff on the show not just recurs in terms of plot points and character, as you're kind of hinting at, but even just on the very small levels of kind of language and phrasing, uh, things recur from episode to episode in different contexts. Um, there's a few examples here that I- I'm interested for us to dive into. So let's talk about um, season three, episode six, what it takes. Um, we'll do our quick plot summary of the major events that happened in this episode and then get into what we think of as kind of like the central sequences and themes of this hour. So uh, we're told now we're told now that it's May and the Waystar team attends the Conservative Future Freedom Summit where donors and power brokers are looking for a last-minute replacement atop the Republican presidential ticket. The top candidates are Vice President Dave Boyer, Rick Salgado, and Jared Menken, a popular outsider candidate implied to have fascist tendencies. 
Shiv pushes Salgado hard while Boyer jockeys for himself, but Roman takes a shine to Menken, who indicates with the gift of a Coke can to Logan that he's willing to play ball, and against Shiv's protest, Logan gives Menken their support. Meanwhile, Roman learns that uh, their mother, Lady Caroline, is marrying a man named Peter Munyon, which is a surprise to the whole family. Ken makes a spectacle of himself in a deposition with the feds. Lisa gives him pointed criticism, to which he responds by firing her. He makes a trip to Virginia to meet secretly with Tom in hopes of flipping him, but Tom is reluctant and ends the episode appearing conflicted. So those are sort of the uh, the major events that we'll see followed up on, uh, we're sure, in subsequent episodes. But since last season's trip to D.C., this is the first time the show has spent an entire episode in the world of politics. And considering that that episode largely concerned an inquiry into Waystar practices, we may say that this is the first time the show has taken an extended deep dive into this milieu of political gamesmanship. We talked last week about how this show fudges some of the details of the American political system, but takes and lands swings at some macro-level ideas uh, that resonate. And here this show gives itself a daunting task by taking some fairly standard critiques of the American political system, that elections are dictated by big money, that conservatives are hypocrites as a rule, that mass media has subsumed politics into itself, and it attempts to dramatize these ideas largely, you know, not through rhetorical debate, through a West Wing style, you know, argument, but through the psychologies and the inner struggles of these characters that have been well established over three seasons. And I think they pull it off. And the place this episode gets in the last few minutes, while it feels inevitable, has this kind of sick feeling of dread to it. Um, that for me on a couple of rewatches did not dissipate. Um, I found this to be sort of like the one of the worst vibes the show has gotten to in the last few minutes here. Was not feeling those vibrations that Kendall was talking about last episode. Yeah, it feels, feels like this always happens when we start to approach like the end of a season. Like the emotional stakes are getting higher. And personally, like I just feel kind of out of sorts and having... Um, you know, intense experiences watching it as we get closer to the end. And like, you know, when we do this podcast, when, when there's a season going on, we watch the show so much, we talk about it, it becomes like incredibly consuming. It's like when crime reporters start having vicarious trauma from their research. And like, <laughs> it sounds dramatic and I'm truly fine. Like, I don't want anyone to worry. I consume art this way because I want to, like, for better or for worse. I'm a pretty introspective and somewhat melancholy person and I'm drawn to tragedy but you know ultimately the more time I spend thinking about succession the more striking the tragedy of it all gets um yeah and I know you know something emotionally devastating is coming um but we have to take it every week and keep talking about it every week like you know we're not giving ourselves a break so this experience you know just it feels kind of like this bizarre suspended reality of like almost being trapped by this show until it's over. <laughs> um, it doesn't help that there are like unignorable parallels in the show to things that are going on in my own life, obviously in a very limited way. But, you know, even with so much to analyze about the show and all the great humor, it's ultimately just a, a very weighty story that sometimes um, is very personally resident, resonant, uncomfortably so. Uh, I suspect that's the case for a lot of diehards of this show. Um, yeah, so just kind of, you know, in the spirit of keeping it real, I'm definitely personally at a point where, where I feel like this is the most affected by my consumption of this show that I've ever been. Um, watching the back half of season one for the first time was a lot too, but we also weren't doing the podcast while that was airing. 
I wasn't spending like every moment ruminating on it. Uh, yeah, this episode was great and it's so funny, but Brendan's right. The more you rewatch it, um, there is something kind of just sickly dark about it. In retrospect, perhaps it's fortunate that uh, we're recording this a little bit earlier than usual this week due to the holiday schedule, and we were only able to rewatch this episode nine to ten times each <laughs> instead of our usual, you know, fifteen to sixteen. Jesus, it was a lot. Gosh, I mean, it's 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 such a funny episode too. So it you know it tricks you, but then yeah, like Brian said, they're telling this story through you know interpersonal relationships, and my God, it's draining. <laughs> And in this episode, there's a lot of little details, too, that you kind of have to follow. Um, it, you know, it's dense with information. A lot of new characters, a lot of new guest characters, stars and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the politics thing is new. I mean, we don't ever get it this textually, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to Jeremy at the top about just how this season looks when you watch a few episodes in a row, because, you know, we've talked in recent weeks a little bit about the some of the criticisms and grumblings that crop up online, I think, for people who are kind of used to binging the show and um, are a little bit thrown by watching it week to week and the way that the show seems to have this plot structure where the characters are traveling in circles. But, you know, the thing I'm reminded of as we get closer to the end of the season is just Uh, You know, as much as the show draws on some of those kind of like circular patterns and those sitcom rhythms and a lot of things in these characters, personal situations don't seem to change that much on a week to week level. Jesse Armstrong does believe, I think, in the power of, you know, some of these more classical, like tragic, dramatic structures. You know, we really had that in season one and season two really paid off in a big way there as well. And as we get towards the end of the season, there is a feeling that those circles, those can, those circles kind of tighten and it becomes, mm-hmm. you know, like a metaphor that has struck me a few times, especially in, you know, towards the end of season one, that struck me as sort of like a whirlpool. And there is this sort of like slide in this big crash that feels like it's coming. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, th- that was kind of the, the ominous thing I felt at the end of this episode. Um, what, what about you, Jeremy? How's your headspace doing? Is this affecting you? <laughs> Ah <laughs> uh, no 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 I I I am I I I'm delighted watching these characters hover over uh, spiritual well, and moral oblivion. Yeah yeah no. Somebody's having fun. We need that. Yes, yeah, yeah, we yeah, need yeah. the levity. <laughs> no. Well, let's so let's talk about uh, the uh, sort of centerpiece sequence of this episode, which is, you know, for the lack of a better term, we'll call it America's Choice, right? This uh, <laughs> sequence where uh, everybody's up in Logan's hotel suite and they're going to pick the next president, right? And there's this sort of idea of triangulation, which is a word that I don't think gets said in the episode, but is very much in play because we do have three major candidates that they're basically choosing between. They're choosing between... Uh, Vice President Dave Boyer, um, who uh, is, he's this sort of funny, like, standard issue Vice President character. I think in the, like, sort of American media imagination, the Vice President is just always, like, some uninspiring white guy. I I think he even played the Vice President on House of Cards, if memory serves. He did, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't watch that show, but yeah, I read about that, yeah. It it feels like a gag from the casting director. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, lots of very witty casting on the show. Like in Shiv's estimation, this guy's an unappealing candidate, and it's kind of hard to argue with him because it seems like the uh, the power brokers at this uh, future freedom summit don't trust him very much either. Uh, he licks his lips too much, which is a liability in debates and on TV. Uh, there's whispers that he's the worst thing you can be in right wing circles, which is a secret vegetarian. Um, and uh, he uh, and he also seems a little bit too uh, desperate. 
and uh, perhaps obsequious to Logan. He uh, He's a little bit too eager to close the deal, which is something that Logan can't respect. Uh, we also have Yul Vasquez as Rick Salgado, who I'm assuming is like a senator. I don't, I don't know if that was really clarified exactly what office he holds. Yeah, Shiv calls him Mr., and I feel like she would have been the kind of person to say, you know, use the correct honorific or whatever. So I thought that was kind yeah. of bizarre. That That's he, interesting. We don't really Yeah, know. but he's a... He's implied to be, I think at one point they say he's a neocon pretending to be a paleocon. There's references mm-hmm. to him having been like a Reagan acolyte, um, but he's also Hispanic. And I think, you know, Shiv has this idea that he can win a general election uh, because, you know, he'll, you know, diversify the GOP a little bit. He can put a little bit of a kinder, you know, like compassionate conservative is the phrase that gets thrown around a lot uh, face on those uh, politics. And he's and it definitely seems to be like some sort of personal familiarity or history between the two of them. Um, he's com- he's very comfortable approaching her. Um, so she, so that's the candidate that Shiv ends up pushing for. Uh, but then we have uh, Jared Menken, uh, played by Justin Kirk, uh, who is a very, very interesting creation. Uh, this is, I, I really loved this performance uh, by Justin Kirk here, who plays uh, this guy with this sort of like seething, like, sexual hostility almost uh the performance is compiled out of these amazing ticks he has this disturbing hyena like bark of a laugh um you know he gives this very theatrical wink to roman at some point and basically this guy is a very heady stew of sort of frightening influences right nobody knows exactly you know what this guy's allegiances are he's implied to be kind of an outsider congressman he doesn't really answer to anybody he openly disrespects logan and atn and the other power brokers at the future freedom summit but at the same time he's hungry you know he approaches roman because he clearly wants uh support and he and he is ambitious you know um, I, I found this character to be really interesting because there's I think that the show has learned somewhat from its experience creating uh, Eric Bogosian's Gil Evis character, which I think was pretty obviously and superficially in many ways a Bernie Sanders analog. Um, and sometimes I think the closeness to Bernie sort of trapped them a little bit. It was hard to sort of make Gil stand on his own as a character because he was like constantly, I think, being compared to the sort of real life inspiration you know there was there were suggestions that he was based on Sherrod Brown these other things too uh but Mencken is very much kind of his own thing the name is a reference to the writer H.L. Mencken um who uh wasn't a fascist per se but he believed societies naturally produced hierarchies and he criticized democracy as a form of government he had his virtues and contradictory tendencies and in that sense he's a good match for a character who seems capable of surprising just about anybody one of my favorite little tidbits is just the spelling of his name sorry guys it's not too deep but um j-e-r-y-d they're really getting into the uh as we kind of talked about last week like millennial zoomer names it's just fun to see them kind of play around with that um yeah a y where there's not supposed to be one is yeah pretty standard nowadays um, now just Justin Kirk um, was most familiar to me from his performance as Pryor on HBO's Angels in America. Uh, but he had another role on Weeds, I'm gathering, which is a show I've yeah. never seen. Is, was anybody familiar with him from that show? That's that's what I was familiar with him from, Weeds, yeah. The thing about Justin Kirk is that he's 
very much back in the you know late 2000s it would have been on the short list for Roman in a hypothetical mm. late 2000s succession. So it, ah. it, it's very interesting casting in that sense. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a very highly verbal, uh, you know, kind of a similarly verbally dexterous actor. Yeah, the the performance is electric. I mean, even though he's a disgusting, um, you know, human being referring to, yeah, H, Nazi boy H had great ideas or, uh, you know, Travis Bickle. But um, watching him is certainly, you can see why uh, any um, Republican or person with that leanings could kind of, you know, be attracted to someone like this. Oh, he's willing to say this? You know, he's a provocateur, but he also does seem to have substance. Now, I don't know if that's actually there, but um, yeah. Yeah. And and the performance is a lot of fun. Yeah. I think Brendan has said before that Succession is a tough show for guest stars to like really shine in and and fit in. Um, I think in part because they're not really independent characters. They're only great insofar as they relate to the Roys, right? Um, but I think Kirk, Kirk was a total home run here. I think part of that was just the, um, instant chemistry. You see him with Roman, um, as soon as they first meet. Oh my God. Um, I mean, I felt it right away. Look, I'm not really a Kieran Culkin gal, but the way these two looked at each other and acted next to each other, um, it was kind of hot. I'm, I'm sorry. I know that they're both detestable. Um, but the way it was shot, the way they were sitting and standing in relation to each other, the dialogue, the pointed si- silences, like even just the similar outfits, um, they were, you know, there was something very electric going on. Like when they first meet at the bar, Roman is um, Googling his picture and Jared kind of just like slides up next to him. And he's like, you know, hey, what's up? Everyone here wants to, you know, kill me or fuck me. Which are you? And I mean, like, he, he says that's his party trick, but, you know, that's not really a party trick. That's a pickup line. Like, yeah, he probably has some intel on who Roman Roy is and needs to seduce him for these political reasons. But he's also actually flirting with him. Um, people may disagree with me, but I think 100 percent he is flirting with him here. He's hitting on him. That's what it feels like if this was a, uh, a man and a woman. Like, that's exactly what people would say. Um, you know, we know Roman loves to flirt and, you know, he's only going to do it when he's into it also and he clearly was um you know he was really enjoying it and chuckling i think he was surprised um because i think you know roman is not usually uh you know he doesn't people don't really capture his attention because he's such a little weirdo and then he (laughs) meets this other sort of little weirdo and um you know there's something gravitational going on there and then there's this bathroom scene um, you know, when they're talking about the politics, but there's kind of like double speak where he's talking about his lack of boundaries. And it's just like, it's so libidinally charged. You feel as though they might pounce on each other at any moment, um, even though that's not the show. But, you know, it just was a very fitting uh, dynamic for an episode about seduction. I, I really couldn't get enough of it. And, and Roman yeah. is like, he's off the leash in this episode, so to speak. No, no mommy Jerry to rein him in. So he's kind of, you know, playing the field. And, and he keeps saying, he's so nice. This is so nice. Even though, like, it's not nice. He's really he's just, he's, nice. he's delighted. Roman never says that kind of stuff. So I think both the characters and the actors, yeah, they played off I each mean, other so well. I mean, it's so funny because the conversation in um, the hotel room at the beginning, Roman does, prior to the bathroom scene, uh, you know, make a lukewarm, I like Mankin, but. I think Boyer's the right guy and it's really clear that like Mencken seals the deal and um you know so to speak in that bathroom and you know 
Roman makes a good pitch. Yeah, the argument about Etienne, yeah. So much of this character and this performance is down to the idea, I think, which, you know, an actor as talented and as seemingly sort of game and liberated by the material as Kirk is here, a big thing that defines this character is that there's something very unsettled and unsettling about him, you know, much in the same way that Roman's sexuality, we might say, is not a settled issue. We haven't really nailed down exactly what's going on there yet. Uh, it's difficult to kind of nail down uh, this guy, you know. Uh, there's a We mentioned you know, a little while ago how there doesn't seem to be a one-to-one comparison to any other sort of like current political figure. You know, he's got, you know, you could say he has traces of a Josh Hawley or a Matt Getz or a Tucker Carlson or a Ben Shapiro or whatever you want. Uh, but there, but none of those really quite match. There are all these influences in the sort of inchoate froth. Shiv says he's Medicare for all and abortions for none. And a disturbing monologue in that bathroom scene, he offers up an analogy for sort of great replacement theory. Um, he says he'll take ideas from anyone, Travis Bickle or H, as he uh, as he says, and we know who he's referring to there. And it's possible, I think, that um, the show will have him settle into a more recognizable form, and that Logan will be able to control him. Uh, but I think uh, how he's used here, the character is more broadly suggestive of the kind of chaos as Emily Vanderwerf said in our episode last week, that the Roys are capable of loosing on the world. Um, and they're, uh, and it, it, that is a difficult thing to do, um, to, I think, conjure up these sort of feelings and unease that people have about just sort of like authoritarian shifts and sort of to, you know, obliquely invoke the specter of the Trump years uh, without having a Trump figure. Um, and they do that basically by getting a great actor and letting him make a character out of this guy. Um, and that's the, it's, it's the kind of really fascinating thing that Succession, with its emphasis on collaborations between performers, you know, writers and direction, is capable of doing. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I thought it was, it, was, it was quite effective here. And uh, there's this, uh, there's almost like a sort of West Wing style scene, as close as this episode gets to the West Wing. Um, by which I mean, you know, a scene where you have characters sort of debating political ideas. There's a scene where Boyer and Salgado and Mencken sort of bump into each other at the chow line and uh, start sort of, you know, uh, dick measuring and talking about their various philosophies and stuff while Shiv kind of scoffs and says that this is also boring. And I kind of agree with Shiv. It is a little bit <laughs> boring. I think it's perhaps necessary for the show to establish that these guys represent maybe different poles um, so that that uh, later sort of America's Choice scene in Logan's hotel room, uh, you know, has established sort of the parameters um but uh but it's 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 but it's uh, it's a little bit clumsier i think or a little bit more prosaic uh than some of these other scenes where uh there's a real sense of what roman finds interesting about somebody like menken or what shiv finds threatening uh about him sure i thought it was a good distillation of kind of the gop and where they cur currently are um yeah. in, t in terms of these three archetypes and um, I believe Shiv was lashing out specifically at Mencken, calling him bo him boring, uh, because she wanted yeah. she wants to get in on um, trying to take him down. Well, again, it's 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 this idea of triangulation. You know, again, we have these mm -hmm. three characters, and Shiv is basically choosing Salgado as the middle pole between Boyer, who she believes can't win an election, 
and Mencken, who she thinks can't be allowed to what, what? win an election. D- right? Does she believe? D- d- does she believe Boyer can't win an election? Though I mean, uh, her self interest may be skewing that a bit. Right. You know, right. Right, he yes, yeah, that that's, that's a question, he, too. He, he seduces her, Jeremy. I think you were going to talk on that. Um, it makes quite quite the offer, just as Mencken seduces Roman. Um, uh, you know, Salgado, you know, the, makes a proposition to uh, Shiv. They certainly play that... He's certainly even more direct than Mencken. He, he's, yes. he's not... <laughs> He's not being coy. There's no wink there. Yeah. Yeah. Vasquez and Snook definitely play that scene, sort of like, uh, sort of like Salgado is like aggressively macking on Shiv, and she's yeah. trying to kind of, <laughs> she's sort of trying to placate him a little bit. Uh, the, the 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 dynamic there is very much like it's an aggressive proposition, right? Um, that's 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 how I... that scene is kind of played when he first approaches her. I do think the wooing works to a degree, and I do wonder how much of her support of Salgado is driven out of self-interest yeah. versus... Because I think, from my takeaway, the more the most moderate of all of them is Boyer. So it would make sense for her... And, and I'm reading into, you know, a lot. But to, to me, Boyer seems like the bland... Centri- most centrist candidate and um but she goes with salgado because he's um gonna make her a queen gonna make her queen <laughs> and also optics i mean yeah. you know she's a yeah, democrat optics. and things like right he's the know, brown man yeah exactly exactly <laughs> and, and you know that's appealing to her um yeah. much like running the company and having her dad arrested uh is probably both appealing and scary yeah, I think the the thing that's scanned is kind of funny to me obliquely about the uh, Salgado thing is that um, the analog that he most immediately calls to mind is Marco Rubio, um, who was mm. you know touted by a lot of you know very smart people in the press and in D.C. as the obvious heir to the Republican Party because they needed to diversify and everything. And, of course, that was before the party uh, decided, nope, we're going to go in this entirely anti-immigrant direction. And also before Rubio revealed himself as a total flop yeah, and show artist. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, <laughs> so there's a, so but also, a, the a, irony is, is that they went in that direction and they've gained more support from people of color. Uh, well, <laughs> not get too real about it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need to do too much of our own kind of political right. analysis on this episode. Uh, but yes, I hear, absolutely. I, I, hear I just, you, Brendan. I just thought that was kind of a, a potentially a funny sly joke again about how Shiv maybe sometimes thinks she's smarter than she is. Um, but but yeah, I think I think this is you know Emily suggested to us last week that this was going to be a big Shiv episode and the stuff that's going on with her here uh is really is really interesting um you know uh you know in the last episode tom said that he was vibing to shiv's sexy window right (laughs) referring to her ovulation period uh and but the show continually kind of brings back phrasing in sort of different ways and bounces different ideas around and here uh we have invoked the idea of the overton window which is this term for the boundaries of kind of acceptable public discourse, right? Shiv in that scene says she's surprised that Roman even knows what the Overton window is. Um, But I'm watching that scene and I'm thinking, Shiv, do you know what that means? Because her window (laughs) is the one that keeps getting dragged right as she finds out that there is no limit 
there is no bottom to what her father will subject her to. You know, mm-hmm. this, the final scene of Shiv, um, you know, at first refusing to be photographed with Mencken, then agreeing to join, but on the outside of the picture, is a blunt illustration of how useless her variety of kind of triangulation is. Because the difference between, you know, being in the photograph and being, you know, slightly to the side of the photograph is a distinction <laughs> without a difference, right? It's a nuance that has exactly no meaning. Um, yeah. She is... You know, she's uh, allowed herself to be negotiated into a pure prop for her father. Um, and uh, the, the thing that keeps happening to Shiv in this season is that she keeps having bits of agency stripped away from her. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's one of those things where, as I was alluding to in the beginning, it does feel sort of circular, but the pressure does sort of feel like it's ratcheting up and it does feel like uh, Shiv is getting a little bit more desperate and feeling a little bit more of that despair. And so this stuff started to resonate with me in a way that felt a lot heavier um, than the previous few episodes. Sure, sure. It's almost like um, uh, one of the last things... Shiv has pretty much given up all her values uh, over the last couple seasons. We've seen that happen. And one of the last things she probably hangs on to for identity is this kind of political party or... Um, you know, cultural identity of, of political party. And we see in this episode that just completely stripped away from her as well. Um, she gave up her personal career uh, in politics. And um, in this episode, she ends with, uh, you know, taking a picture with someone who could, as she says, invade Poland. Um, I also found it really interesting in this episode that she was awarded two medals, like imaginary medals, like give her a cookie. Uh, first at the beginning, um, when she tries to outlandishly claim that she saved the company from in the last episode by making striking that last minute uh, self-interested deal with Sandy and um, gets humiliated by Logan saying, Carrie, why don't you give her a medal? And um, again, another thing that she's token that she's kind of holding on to is this tokenism. And when she says um, in in the royal suite, which I found appropriate, um, you know, it's not a true republic. if These guys are pick, picking the president behind the scenes. Um, and she's... Uh, she's awarded a, a a medal by Roman. So she keeps getting these like quote unquote symbolic victories and, and none of them are real. None of them are material. And in the very end, you know, Logan, okay, you win pinky. Just take the picture at the end. And it, it doesn't yeah. matter. She's it's also infantilizing. Absolutely. Infantilizing participation trophies. Another very yeah. common kind of yes. like reactionary canard. <laughs> At right, least when right. Shiv was, you know, working in politics for the Dems and for Gill, it was on her own terms, right? Like, her dad might have not respected her work all that much, but at least he wasn't actively, uh, you know, disrespecting her. Shiv Taunting had, her. She, she, she had some sense of self and differentiation in season <laughs> one, right? Yeah, yeah. But again, the differentiation was, you know, only in reaction to Logan. So he was right, still right. dictating the script in a sense. Yeah. Logan's always dictated the script and will mm-hmm. probably yeah, yeah. for the rest of their lives, sadly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, now she's realizing she has no idea what it is that she really stands for or wants or where she belongs. Um, who is she? Right. 
Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is the question. Yeah, this is the the very dark mood that sets in at the end of this episode. You know, mm-hmm. what is what is it exactly that has, has Shiv so upset? I mean, she's very upset that Logan's backing Mencken, but what's behind that? Is it her sincere sort of political beliefs? I mean, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that Shiv, who's very cynical, but who's spent a lot of time running in liberal circles, is genuinely appalled at the prospect of a Mencken presidency. And crucially, since Mencken isn't a Trump type, you can't quite chalk this up to the aesthetic revulsion that a Trump-inspired in liberals. Mencken just, you know, he seems evil. He does seem dangerous as Shiv says but mixed in here is that question of identity you know if we just look at what's happened to her this season I'm not sure it's an escalation but it's sure a sequence of sort of takings away of humiliation she's denied the CEO role that Logan once promised her it goes to Jerry she gets a figurehead position that makes her a casualty of Ken's war with the company she's denied credit for striking a deal that saves the company in her eyes her marriage is crumbling her husband's going to jail soon and won't sleep with her in the meantime and now her father is rejecting (laughs) even her career specific expertise and that's a very right. double-edged rejection, not only in the sense that, you know, her counsel is the main thing she offers her father. You know, there was that scene in Dundee in season two where he goes, you get it, you fucking get it. Uh, but that she yeah. seems to have been thrown over in favor of Carrie, Logan's assistant, yeah. a kind of surrogate daughter always at Logan's side, who he not only trusts for good counsel, but he may be fucking on the side. You know, Snook doesn't show all this in the performance, but she's being subjected to this hollowing out that, you know, in my mm-hmm. eyes, maybe even more systematic than what was done to Ken in season two. Like, what's left of mm-hmm. her? What, as Tom asked her last episode, is all this for? And that sort of mm-hmm. ratcheting up of pressure that I've been talking about, you know, I was just surprised rewatching this, how moving I found some of this material, you know, and by Shiv's situation, as hard as we've been on her this season, because it really seems to me that she is at or is close to that moment of rock bottom, of maximum pressure. And mm-hmm. one of the questions this show asks is, something is going to have to give for these people but what gives first is it Shiv Roy or is it you know the American experiment yeah absolutely I think you know we are witnessing um uh, what happened to Kendall in season two you know constantly saying I'm doing this because my dad told me so I mean Shiv repeated that line many times in previous episodes this season and he's just uh Logan is just um knows how to get at the heart of people and and destroy them and tear them apart and especially because what they want these kids want most is his approval is why uh you know it's so heart harmful and hurtful and um yeah it's like a hollowing out of who she is uh, and i i wonder what a what a shiv rock bottom actually looks like you know because with ken it's more clear he has the addiction issue he has the addiction issues (laughs) You know, um, he has the mania. He's got the depression. But, you know, Shiv always comes off as as, as so unflappable. What is... Yeah, I mean, Tom leaving would be uh, catastrophic for her, for sure. But, like, internally, uh, what would a Shiv rock bottom look like? You know, how would that manifest? Jeremy, I'm interested for your thoughts on that. I mean, I always uh, love hearing you talk about actors. And, again, Snook is such an interesting performer, especially when she's asked to play somebody who's under a lot of pressure because she definitely shows, I think, a lot of the technique in her performance and how Shiv is constantly working to keep up that cool, calm exterior. Um, But there's a lot of sort of trembling and there's a lot of, uh, you know, quavering in that in this episode. So what do you you think, you know, Snook is is doing in in these scenes? She's very finely tuned playing off of Brian Cox, especially this season. 
Um, so seeing that tempo being set and uh, from her reaction and the way she's she's kind of wavering off and, and letting that anxiety creep in and, and slip in at the various angles, you know, uh, and, and it's interesting to contrast, especially watching her with any of her family and, and watching her with Tom, where she has a, a kind of relaxed indifference, but uh, I, I, which in a way is, is a credit to their marriage because she, she kind of lacks the permanent and crushing anxiety, even if it is uh, replaced by the uh, indifference. So, so I'm very interested in the way she plays that because, because you know, she is somebody who is falling, falling apart. Uh, that, that is true. She, she is unquestionably headed for some kind of galvanization this season. It's just uh, what form it's going to take. Uh, she's not giving that away. That's, that's the fun part. Who will survive and what will be left of them? Um, yeah, who will I mean... survive in America? <laughs> who will survive in America? <laughs> a little Kanye. Well, it's Gil Scott Heron, but <laughs> little uh, um, beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy going on. I mean, a lot of people speculating that she's going to defect to Ken I mean, as her final yeah. option, basically. Yeah. I think we see hints or <laughs> possible. I think we're going to go into that a little bit more when when we talk about Ken and right. Tom at the at the diner, but um Yeah. Well, we were talking earlier about the prospect of Shiv and Ken because again, without wanting to speculate too much about what future configurations of this plot might look like, one thing that that thought reminds me of is not just, you know, their falling out in Mass and Time of War. Uh, but that moment of connection between them in safe room, um, right. you know, when Ken says, you, you know, he needs somebody to take care of him. And that's really true. He still really does. This whole season has demonstrated how badly oh, Ken needs see. somebody to take care of him. <laughs> he needs somebody who is not someone he can fire when they tell him the truth uh, right. <laughs> to, to, to be looking after his best interests. You know, I don't know that Shiv is that person. You know, and that scene in Safe Room is interesting partly because I don't think Shiv entirely grasps the... Well, she doesn't entirely grasp the stakes of what's going on with Ken because no. there's things that she doesn't know about what he's going through. Um, but, uh, you know, it would, be, it would be interesting to see them uh, try to be more honest with each other, not because I think that would form, you know, perhaps a more perfect union, uh, but because they, they haven't quite gotten there with each other yet. Um, and there is a, a potential that they could offer something to each other. Well, on Rock Bottom, from the Shiv we met from the very beginning, her whole thing was that she had her own life separate from Logan. And as we've already, like, I guess, uh, harangued, kind of, you know, that's just been stripped away. Um, and every single possible value she may or may not have actually had deep inside has been stripped away, too. So she's getting, I, we, she's getting there. Yeah. Well, speaking of someone who doesn't really seem to have values, someone who isn't interested in politics, uh, this is a very interesting Roman episode. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how the scenes between him and Mencken certainly have the flavor of a flirtation or a seduction. Um, uh, but what I thought was what I thought was really interesting in these scenes is how yeah, I think the Roman material is one of the ways that the show obliquely, but I thought quite intelligently, um, offers uh, some uh, critiques uh, of the American political system. You know, Roman pitches Mencken to his father as box office, right? He says he's box office, he's diesel, and there's this running thread. <laughs> 
there's this running thread in this episode about politics as entertainment. Um, this is another sort of like maybe cliched critique, but the show deepens it and psychologizes it. You know, early on, Tom tells Greg that the summit is a safe space where they don't have to pretend to like Hamilton. And a second later, he says, sure, he likes Hamilton. They all do. That's both a pointed joke about the, you know, particular show's status as an article of faith among the liberal sect everyone at the summit claims to despise. Uh, while they also have much more in common with that sort of cosmopolitan class than they let on. And the episode also features references to Roman's failed stint as a Hollywood executive with Waystar <laughs> Studios. And there's this kind of submerged observation and all this very well-laid character work about the kind of Hollywood fail guy to conservative influencer pipeline, right? I mean, like Ben Shapiro, you know, like Steve Bannon, who's rich because oh, he has a piece of the Seinfeld royalties. You know, take your pick. Um, so I, I, all that stuff is really seated in there in the Roman material which I quite like because there's a point where he says you know I always found it really difficult to care about politics which you know A is obvious because there is like literally no stakes for a, like a, a, bill, a male billionaire to care about politics right there's like <laughs> nothing that could happen that would have a material impact on his life um, but it's also true that you know you know people like Roman, you know, who don't have those stakes, you know, a lot of people are just kind of looking for novelty, um, or just looking for something that they haven't heard before. And again, that's where the sort of novelty and the freshness and the energy of Kirk's performance as Mencken, you know, you can start to see how something like that catches on. And Logan likes to have fun. He likes to be entertained above all. So I think Roman pitching it that way is, you know, it's a slam dunk for dad. It was a real smart move on Roman's behalf. I think, Gabby, you were talking about, you know, how ATN is sort of, you know, it's kind of like Logan's pet project, right? You know, this is uh, not something that necessarily is, you know, great for politics or optics or the business or anything like that. Uh, but it's something that he kind of, you know, personally enjoys is sort of making that sort of spectacle uh, and being able to sort of, you know, dip his fingers uh, in into politics and sort of right. move the skies and the stars, right? Yeah, I mean, he's an entertainment and hospitality guy first, right? That's what Waystar is. It actually made me think of um, the shareholder meeting episode. There's like a poster that they put up with all the, uh, you know, Waystar subsidiaries. And there's a bunch that we've never heard of. And I was just so curious about like what all of those were. Um, but it does seem like, you know, ATN was something that came later on. It was sort of a you know, for kicks for Logan, he likes to watch it himself, right? And Fox News off, you know, often gets uh, divided um, as you know they have their you know editorial and uh, journalistic, and then you know there's you know the just the sheer entertainment. So um, yeah, I think the the show does a good job. Uh, it's interesting that Logan. Well, he, he's certainly framed as, you know, obviously a you know, one man media conglomerate. He's not he's not framed as a as a, as a newsman, as the kind of popular myth of Rupert Murdoch is. You know, we don't get mm -hmm. any uh, a, a, of a sense. And, and so that difference is very interesting when it comes to how ATN is being utilized uh, as more of an instrument towards power than, you know, a culmination of a, a project, per se. As it is in the case, as Fox, it's from Murdoch. Yeah, I mean, the show has busted out that quote about how, you know, an institution is the shadow of one man, right? And that's where the show uh, kind of backs into 
its uh, critique and its presentation of these political elements that have resonances and parallels in the real world. We don't see a lot of the inner workings of ATN, although we'd really like to. We think that would be a lot of fun to see more of. Um, it's always fun to see Mark Ravenhead, who pops up again here. Uh, but the show doesn't necessarily need to depict that stuff because it's so well established that the network is, in essence, an expression of Logan's id. And the mm -hmm. show itself, through all its character work and its drama, is so steeped in that. <laughs> we are always swimming around in his head in those kind of fetid waters. Uh, so there's no real need to show us the, the plumbing, so to speak. Uh, but we did skip over, I think, one of the most important players in this episode. And I want to put this question to Jeremy. Uh, you know, what 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 went wrong for Connor Roy in that in that hotel suite because it's it seemed it seemed there that he that he almost had it he had his he had his he had his hand, his fingers reaching out towards the the brass ring and then it and then it went south for him somewhere so do you do you think that Connor's in serious contention here and uh, uh, what are what are sort of the potential pros and cons uh, for Logan as they lay out there if if anything, Mencken rising is better for Connor because Mencken is inherently absurd, and in absurd times, Connor Roy can really thrive. So I'd say, sure, bring bring in somebody to you know break down the taboos. Cause, That's a good point. Who else could uh you know really thrive in that environment? But uh, our man. Connor That's a very Roy. good point. Yeah, we get uh, we get another glimpse of some con heads at the Future Freedom Summit. Uh, yeah, the show it's, Panhandle Pete. <laughs> Panhandle Pete, right? Yeah, like sort of like his inter internet commenter buddies and things like that. So it's yeah, it's interesting as again, this is the sort of thing that like the show seeds a lot of stuff in there that's like really funny. Like they seed in stuff like the Fly Guys that are like sort of one-off gags, uh, and the con heads. You know, the con heads are loving this. Was kind of like a one-off gag, uh, but now it seems like there is this sort of subculture out there somewhere. We're meant to. Uh, that it's you know they're congregating online maybe in donor groups etc and you, you know and I, and I was sort of thinking about you know because we also have the return of Mark Lynn Baker as Maxim Pierce who we met in Turnhaven who I think uh, works at the Brookings Institute and uh, argued with Connor but then uh, they got drunk and he offered him the State Department I think Connor said in that episode uh, and it appears <laughs> and probably that that alliance has persisted so again all this is sort of comic relief I don't know how seriously to take much of this but i was just kind of idly speculating what are the possible points of agreement between a brookings institute guy and a kind of wingnut i don't know protectionist libertarian type like connor you know i was just i was just sort of wondering like what is the actual sort of connor program besides the uh you know smash hit tagline of usury and onanism uh, the great dangers. What, what what does that program actually consist of? I don't know. That was that was just kind of a food for thought for me. I'm dying to know what the platform is. I don't have an answer to your question, Brendan, or any fun speculations. How about you, Gabby or Jeremy? Uh, esoteric, esoteric, you know, uh, mysticism. That's you know, American mysticism <laughs> is is what Connor Roy represents, and more power to him. Yeah. yeah oh God, I did just see that uh the owner of some or i guess the owner of gawker um ex-owner i don't know tried to buy napoleons do you guys know the news no he did he did buy the napoleon yeah. hat yeah it's the uh, it's the owner of bustle which uh runs okay, the, yes. the, the 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 revamped gawker yeah that so does I not think... answer your question brendan but i found that a fun little 
play with like the type that Connor would be. I think it's another really uncomplicatedly positive sign for America's media institutions. That's uh, nothing full steam. Full <laughs> yeah, steam I mean, let's get a pod with them. <laughs> outside of the tax stuff, I mean, I don't think Connor really has convictions about anything. Yet. So I think a guy like Maxim Pierce is, uh, you know, steeped in like uh, think tank culture is, um, you know, probably can convince them of, of a bunch of stuff, you know, especially if they're enjoying a nice of a nice glass of, of port along with it. I don't know. Connor's pretty opinionated. You know, he and Willa have those late night bull sessions, you know, talking all kinds right. of ideas about <laughs> art and culture and stuff. Great to see Willa again, of course. Great I to see Justin so Loop who returns uh, after, uh, after an absence of, I think, four episodes, which I think is the longest we've probably ever gone without seeing her um, on this show. We miss you, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> always always great to see her but yeah the uh yeah the future we the future freedom summit uh this is run by this donor pet kiss played by steven root the show is really just like uh uh just gorging us on guest stars this season i mean they just sort of flaunt steven root just like waving you know a wad of hundred dollar bills in your face or something um you know and they just take <laughs> him away like that um, Stephen Root, of course, played uh, famously uh, billionaire Jimmy James on news radio. It's one of his uh, his major roles. Um, so it's it's kind of funny to imagine uh, a Jimmy, an alternate Jimmy James, <laughs> running the Future Freedom Summit. Um, but this is a sort of private, invite only donor summit where they are, you know, as they say, picking the next president. There is a White House presence. And Michelle Ann, well, and the actual vice president is there too. Um, and, you know, despite the presence of all these sort of, you know, con heads and sort of frat bro types, uh, this is also a place where the kind of cosmopolitan elites, as we said, play. These people who sort of deny that they have anything in common with the libs and, you know, make really tiresome jokes about cancel culture and Hamilton uh, and vegetarians. Yeah, but there is this uh, there's this really just kind of disturbing current of libidinal energy that uh, that suffuses this episode. You know, there's the, the you know another cliche that this show kind of explores is that Republicans are anti-gay because they're deeply closeted, right? But the show uses that as a jumping-off point for this and a whole host of kind of implied sexual hangups and undercurrents simmering beneath the surface and being worked out through the negotiations of these power brokers. You know, Petkus is implied by show to have blown his son's archery instructor, and he seems to proposition both Willa and Connor as a couple. Um, you know, as we talked about, Mencken seethes with this hostile sexual energy. One detail I like in that bathroom scene is that they are, I think as Gabby observed, dressed similarly, in that they've both like taken off their ties and jackets, almost like they've slipped into something more comfortable, uh, or, or, or like they're in a bathhouse or something. Tom turns down sex with Shiv and instead arranges a midnight rendezvous with Greg to get the emotional support his wife can't provide. Um, and most surprisingly and disturbingly, Shiv uh, finds finds her political expertise discounted in favor of an increasingly vocal Carrie, um, who may or may not be carrying on an affair with uh, Logan, but she seems to have become the crucial vote in that closed-door election anyway. And that, again, this implication that Shiv's lost her status as the trusted daughter to someone that Logan can sleep with, you know, has all kinds of unsettling resonances throughout the episode, especially as the kind of Oedipal framework that the season has invoked many times 
resurfaces here, including early in the hour when Shiv taunts Roman about his dream of porking mom. Right, so there's just there's this very unsettling sexual charge to this entire episode, and I think you know, Kate, you mentioned that this whole summit, you know, sort of feels like you know the the whorehouse from Mad Men or something. The the entire vibe to me was like picking a president is the same as picking a sexual partner uh, who you know you're going to um, take to bed whose deal got sealed and that was Mencken and that's even what Shiv says to Salgado I couldn't seal the deal um, and so all these sexual kind of innuendos and overtones to me um, just kind of rang like this is one big whorehouse under the guise of it being a freedom summit for America. Um, and actually, it's it's everyone doing a song and dance, lifting their skirt, showing their leg uh, to get these endorsements, which, again, have has this overt sexual kind of connotations to it. Um, yeah, I mean, when sex when sex is a subject on this show, it's rarely kind of a positive thing right no. and yeah. you know the, the really the, what's what, what what i've always thought about the way that the the show's fandom kind of fixates on ships and on sort right. of speculating about sexual histories or you know fan fiction about sexual relationships between characters is trying to insert something into the show that feels or trying to uh to extricate something that feels repressed right mm -hmm. or insert something that isn't there um, but, sure. but I mean, but I mean, there was that line in Austerlitz, right? Where Ken says to Logan, you know, like your whole business model is based on seducing presidents. You're right. a high class hooker, <laughs> you know, not, not, you know, kind of a crass analogy. Uh, but again, I mean, that's the, you know, the, the only way that these people will kind of conceive of sexuality is in sort of this very dark, uh, sort of power relations sense. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, overall, you know, one thing we were remarking on, you know, Gabby actually mentioned it a little while ago, the fact that Roman seems off the leash in part because the perhaps civilizing influence of Jerry is not present. Um, we don't have the entire C-suite here. Hugo's there, but we're missing Carl. We're missing Frank. But we're also missing Carolina and Jerry. And, you know, I, I, Jerry's absence was the one that was most notable to me. And, you know, I was just reflecting on how it seems that this is kind of an unfriendly place uh, for women. Certainly Willa seems uncomfortable with Petkus's attention, obviously. And then we, we have, as we mentioned before, that scene between Snook and Vasquez where it seems that Salgado is quite aggressively coming on to her. Uh, is the energy that's sort of uh, burbling beneath that scene. Yeah, repressed male sexuality definitely permeating the episode. Um, I thought the tease out of Carrie's characterization was absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, this is something that the show does, planting seeds about characters um, that sometimes amount to something really interesting later on. You know, and it's all contingent on the writers knowing the characters as well as they do, right? Because in general, these like latent storylines are really hard to pull off without feeling very contrived. But one of the beautiful things about the show is that, um, you know, they they lay all this fertile ground for surprises that end up feeling kind of like inevitable in retrospect. So so Carrie's role so far has been peripheral. We basically see her with Logan and what we can presume is an executive assistant role. Um, she was in season two a little bit, but didn't have any lines. This season, she's had a few lines that are typically just kind of like on the phone. Oh, hey, the FBI's downstairs. Um, the president's on the phone. 
But then, you know, there's been some more pointed closeness with Logan. I think starting with the plane ride after the Aronson visit, right? Um, when, <laughs> when he hands her the phone, the president's on the phone and says, you know, you want to hear what it sounds like when the president's having a nervous breakdown and she giggles. Uh, but again, like all of that could have amounted to, to, to nothing else and we'd be none the wiser. But in this episode, Carrie opens her mouth um, in the scene with Vice President uh, Boyle, or is it Boyer? Sorry. Um, <laughs> with Vice President Boyer and um, kind of defends Logan's honor. And you know that Logan approved that because, you know, he looks at her kind of proudly afterwards and also because you wouldn't dare uh, speak up in a situation like that unless you knew uh, you know Logan had Back sanctioned you. it yeah right so all of a sudden she's like in response to the rumor about the made-up rumor <laughs> <laughs> about <laughs> the deputy AG having uh, Logan's picture on her dartboard or whatever um, and the and the VP is like oh well, I think it's just a rumor and Carrie's like yeah well you know maybe there's a reason that it feels like a rumor you know I think that's the point <laughs> the same difference and, and all of a sudden <laughs> she just you're just like what like where where the fuck did that come yeah. from um, you know we know that Logan has a history of being distracted which is the term he uses with Marsha in um, episode two of this season when she confronts him about her humiliation with Rhea Jarrell and Logan's. Um, you know, relationship with her last season. So Logan gets these crushes. Um, and it's kind of idiosyncratic because we don't really ever see Logan kind of sweet on someone all the time, right? He's like, you know, inevitably mean to you at some point. But um, so far, we've only seen him kind of be uh, genial and and friendly with Carrie. And this episode, you know, we also see he values her opinion. Um, we know it happened with Rhea last season. Then, of course, there's the infamous Sally Ann situation, which has only been alluded to, but we know has like some weight to it in terms of what the implications were. Um, I recently started reading The Man Who Owns the News about Rupert Murdoch. Um, it's got some really interesting personality and characterization stuff. Uh, I really wish that I had read it sooner. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like caught up reading it and for a split second I forget you know the connection to succession I'm like shit that sounds a lot like Logan Roy um yeah and there's also really interesting stuff about um Murdoch's uh attempt by the Wall Street Journal the Dow Jones owned by the Bancroft family who are sort of the um analog to the Pierces so one part uh talks about Logan's crushes and I mean I'm sorry one part talks about uh, Murdoch's crushes and there is another development that summer Murdoch has a crush this is a theme of Murdoch's management style he will on occasion become infatuated with someone and then in not so subtle and sometimes not so logical ways before he falls out of love reorganize the company around that person so that's not to say he's going to do this with Carrie right but in this episode he he did essentially rely on Carrie's final say so um, in that selection of of the candidate in the hotel room over Shiv. Um, I don't think this is the first time Shiv has been, um, you know, subordinate to a woman that Logan is sleeping with, right? I mean, we see it right off the bat in early episodes of season one with Marsha. Uh, it happened again with Rhea. Uh, this is probably a source of, of, of major a hurt pattern, and again, yeah. sort of going on to the, you know, edible themes that we were talking about earlier. Um, but yeah, it's just really fascinating to imagine the writer room, writer's room sussing this kind of thing out, like taking someone like Carrie and asking who she is and how she would fit into Logan's world. 
Um, how could she possibly cause any kind of upheaval in these fragile familial or business dynamics? And then you have this existing knowledge of Logan's propensity for infatuation. And then it's all kind of just laid out there for them to put it together. Um, you know, and as we know for Logan, what's, what's most important is that someone gets it right. Uh, definitely seems like Carrie, you know, we don't know really anything about her background at all, but, um, you know, she's there kind of, um, as this you know, very, uh, seems to be very fiercely loyal to Logan, uh, yes, woman seems to be on his side and looking out for his best interest. Um, it kind of just, you know, popped up out of nowhere, but then again, you think about it in retrospect, this does make sense for someone like Logan. It, it's a bit reminiscent of uh, Megan from the uh, Mad Men, uh, where she started mm-hmm. off the fourth season uh, as kind of a secretary, but uh, by the end of the season uh, was yeah. Megan Draper married to the main character. Yeah, right. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it's 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 definitely interesting. That's that's a lot of food for thought there. Yeah. Well, it's this it's this thread, this submerged thread of kind of, you know, misogyny. And it's not an accident that the show is uh, sort of developing this relationship with Carrie at the same time that it's increasingly interested in this personal crisis that Shiv is going through. You know, it's it, I do think the show is sort of intentionally uh, and quite provocatively and, you know, you know, grossly drawing this parallel between Carrie and Shiv, you know, as, uh, you know, the one thing that, you know, <laughs> Shiv can't do for her father, right, is, mm-hmm. uh, is sleep with him, right? It's, it's, it's a very disturbing idea, but I mean, it does fit in with sort of, you know, uh, a, a thread of misogyny that fits in well uh, with Logan's character and the way that Shiv feels continually kind of like isolated and reduced to her status, you know, as a woman, right? And it's not something, again, that the show underlines a lot, but I do think if we look back at the way Shiv's character has been established, she does, uh, you know, take quite a bit of, uh, you know, self-confidence and self-possession from sex and from her relationship uh, with Tom and, of course, being able to sort of sleep around with other people in their quote-unquote arrangement. Um, And that's another thing that's kind of, you know, deprived from her this season. And I think the the show just is kind of circling these parallels in ways like all this material just sort of bubbles up. It's very nasty. All this disgusting stuff about the cruises and then we have Logan kind of just like shamelessly fucking fucking his secretary, you know. Uh, the Who's way how the kid, old? <laughs> you know, the, the, the way the kids talk to each other about dad's sex life and and uh, you know Roman wanting to fuck mom and and dad still likes blowjobs. I mean, it's it's gross. It's disturbing. Um, and yeah, this. I mean, maybe that's part of why this episode and a couple of rewatches was like so heavy. But yeah, it really brings to the surface uh, that kind of like just gross uh you know toxic (laughs) to use another term that was thrown around this episode um yeah i found it kind of horrifying that like one look from carrie was able to shut down the entire and it was a it was a come fuck me look oh totally very very scary shot yeah if we have the the presidency you know on the line and he and and one person can get a look i know this isn't an exact analog to real life but you know it just kind of makes you think i mean just all these personal petty grievances and powerful people and 
what material impact does that have on right. the real world and our real lives? Just I like, mean, that law. There's their sexual whims. Yeah, she's right. kind of like circling the room in that scene. And like, you know, she's there because she's been invited to be there. Otherwise, she wouldn't be there. So, right. Um, Hugo, yeah. Hugo asks, is Greg necessary? Nobody asks. <laughs> we nobody all asks, were is Perry necessary? Right. We all were what? asking, is Greg necessary? I'm sorry. We are well, all always asking. Why minimi- is Greg minimizing here? the Greg window. As <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's an Asimov story I think about a lot called Franchise about a future where uh, Amer- where elections are held by basically they find one demographically representative guy and he goes and takes a survey and then the computer sort of like tabulates the results and uh, sort of uh, uh, casts the results of the election from there, uh, just extrapolating this the survey that one guy takes. Um, I, I don't know. I I, I, th- I think about that sometimes. That that was one of the things that this uh, this scene reminded me of. Um, Greg, of course, makes his presence felt by saying like, "Hey, you know, if, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna say one thing, since you know it seems like I get more of a vote in this room, I just want to say I don't think you should crown Connor president or whatever." I'm just like, why why is that the line? <laughs> like, why why is that the thing that he's so uh fixated on or maybe he just wants to say he just felt the need to say he felt the need to say he didn't think this was right was my takeaway like them choosing uh and and they happened to only ask his input for for connor mind you they didn't ask him for anyone else and oh yeah that's true that's true (laughs) and poor shiv of course she's like she she really like takes the question seriously about uh, whether connor's fit and logan's kind of just playing with everyone and she's like trying really hard to use her political chops and like say okay well you know the name id issue and and experience and stuff and and logan's just playing a game it's 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 so sad she was right i mean i do wonder i mean i don't wonder because we know connor but um why not go with connor besides like the obvious reasons that he's a dumbass and i mean did he ever have a chance never had a job ever Never I done nothing, know. never. Yeah, I mean, Connor does say, like, I'll fight so hard for this family, but I, I kind of <laughs> wonder about that. You know, he, right. Connor's, Connor's very opinionated. You know, he's got a pretty high opinion of his own sort of, like, intellectual uh, stamina, et cetera. Um, I, think that, I think that he might be difficult to control if they actually put him in the White House. So. Fair um, enough. But, but, yeah, I think, there's, I think the reason that Logan floats in there is really just so that um, you know, both to kind of toy with him and also so that Connor will feel that he's been included when he right. needs everybody to get on the same page later with whoever the eventual right. choice ends up being. But there is very much a sense that all the kids in that scene are just sort of uh, in the room while some other sort of like sexual game is playing out between Logan and Carrie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Cox has this Cox has this terrifically sort of like self-satisfied feline look on his face mm-hmm. uh, that he gets sometimes. <laughs> yes. uh, th- it, it reminded me very much of uh the bit in the recurring bit in parks and rec when whenever ron swanson gets laid he wears the like red polo shirt to work the next day and is like alarmingly upbeat and chipper that's kind of how logan felt to me brendan i'm sorry in this conversation in this context you have to call him logan not cox okay Fair enough. Well, I, mean, I, I, yes. I got I, I, uh, Logan. Okay, yeah, <laughs> no yeah, yeah. cocks, no cocks allowed. Yeah, the, 
Well, you know, continuing on the kind of Oedipal <laughs> themes, we did mention earlier that we learn in this episode that Lady Caroline uh, is right. b- getting married to a man named Peter Munyon, who um, I, I, I struggled to think of where I had heard that name before, thinking it must be a peep show thing or something before I realized it's a homophone of mm-hmm. uh, Peter Mannion, uh, the uh, sort of opposition uh, dosak from uh, uh, The Thick of It. Um which uh, it, would, it would be really nice to get uh, to get Pe- to get Peter Mannion back on the show. Uh, maybe he can play Boris Johnson or something. Um, well, who's going to play Peter Mannion? Uh, <laughs> I don't. I, I didn't recognize the actor. Did you, uh, Jeremy? Uh, Pip Torrens, I believe. If I if I'm Pip? Right. We have Pip. a Pip. We have a Pip. <laughs> oh my God, Comfrey. I mean, I know that's a character name, but wow, we're we're having some fun. Yeah, I like that uh, Roman says, you know, we have to stop the wedding, right? And I just briefly had this image of him and Shiv parent trapping Logan and uh, Caroline. Um, Aww. I am am kind of thrilled by the prospect of another wedding episode possibly uh, coming in the near future. I think it is coming. It is coming, yeah. yeah. Well, and and more Harriet Walter, of course, always a treat. Naturally, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that really stuck out to me this episode, and this is my language, is that Tom seems to be completely and totally blackpilled. Um, which, for those of you that aren't necessarily familiar with that idea or phrase, it's just, um, it's kind of a manner of cope when you try to kind of convince yourself you're, you've given up on everything. Um you know, I mean, he even goes so far as to say, what's the what's the quote, Brendan? The Terry? You, they, they, you, they can't get you if you've got no hope, right? That, and then there was a Terry. I haven't the Terry, the Terry of hope. Of hope I'm not but going to. It, <laughs> it, it completely yeah. reminded me of, like, say, post-Nevada for some of us Bernie fans. You know, just like, oh, I don't give a shit. You know, obviously we do still care, but you, you're just... After Super Tuesday. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just kind of, you have to convince yourself that, like, you're okay, I'm going to prison, this is what it is, it's the way it is, nothing else matters, nothing really matters, everything is kind of, uh, the world is as it is, and, and we can't change it kind of thing. And... um yeah, like all the cerebral stuff about like this is what the food's going to be right. like. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, it's very weirdly disconnected. Yeah, what did you guys make of all of that? Well, I love the I love the Tom stuff just because again I think that the stuff about him sort of like needing wanting to adjust to prison and trying to sort of like gamify and scope out the prison amenities as much as he can is such a funny <laughs> running gag. And I would be very happy if the last three episodes of this season were her were Matthew McFadden just describing prison amenities and flipping through that catalog of his. Uh, but I, I this was one of the things. I mean, the Shiv and Tom material in this episode was the stuff that on rewatches I did find surprisingly the most affecting because while all of this is very funny you know this idea of a rich man trying to gamify his prison experience somehow um and kate talks about the idea of cope which is kind of you know a a funny ironic idea too uh but you know I'm, i'm always sort of interested because although on this podcast i think we treat the issue of whether the characters on succession are sympathetic as sort of a settled issue that we've uh, that we don't really uh, talk about too much because we sort of take it for granted at this point. I am always kind of interested to see what sort of entry points there are 
for sort of more universal experiences into the text here, right? And the Tom stuff, while I have not had the experience of being, you know, about to go to white collar prison myself, um, you know, all this stuff kind of strikes me as him trying to adjust to a future that seems sort of just oppressively bleak to him, right? And that is something that I think people can find an entry point into, right? Sure. You know, whether you th whether you're thinking about, you know, as you said, sort of like bad electoral outcomes or you know climate anxiety, things like this. Tom is trying to find something in the future that he can look forward to. You know, in the last episode when he's talking about having a kid with Shiv, you know, and in this episode he's sa he's saying, okay, I need to sort of like preemptively adjust myself to, to, and to prepare for this very bad future. And this this was just something that I thought was sort of interesting as something that I think viewers of this show might find a way into, you know, and McFadden's performance is always very affecting to me, even when he is uh, sort of an obsequious, absurd character. There, we, we talked last episode about how much more sort of human some of his responses to these events are. Um, and so I did find myself kind of quite touched by some of these very odd passages in the diners here. Sure. When we don't have control of the situation or control of the future, uh, we, I think, you know, us as humans, we do everything in our power to kind of regain some sense of control. And that's this is him accepting that he's going to prison and reading the prison blogs as his way of doing so. But I agree, Brendan. And I think for the first time, um, I, I, it's silly to say who do I, you know, empathize with most. But Tom really comes across quite sympathetic this episode and, and this whole season and him kind of willing to take the bullet is something I didn't expect. Yeah, you're referring to uh, when during that late night rendezvous with Greg in the diner um, where uh, Greg says that they've given Tom the nickname of the Christmas tree because they mm. can just hang any sort of like criminal offenses on him, you know, like Christmas ornaments uh, and <laughs> You know, whatever they have lying around that they need someone to take the fall for, he can take the fall for it. Um, <laughs> another and, new nickname for Tom. Another new nickname. He's, he's racking them up. Yeah. <laughs> we got um, we got to keep a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> but Greg has been himself sort of ideating and fixating on this idea that Ken's going to burn him, meaning, I guess, tell the Justice Department about you know Greg's involvement with the documents, which, I mean, as the testimony in D.C. suggested, I think they already have an idea of or some surely there's enough in there to at least haul Greg in for questioning. Uh, but he mm -hmm. asks Tom if this is something that he can hang on him. Can Tom, you know, take the blame for Greg kind of like shredding the documents and his personal involvement in the Cruz's scandal? Um, and Tom, after, you know, some sort of uh, after after a brief exchange, says, sure, you know, why not? You know, load me up. Um, and it is a sort of rare kind of like selfless act, you know, and there is the uh, idea of, you know, what does Tom have to lose at this point by saying yes to Greg there. Uh, but there is in that brief moment, a glimpse of that kind of solidarity between Greg and Tom and their shared kind of odd position as second class members of the Roy family that we'd seen in previous seasons that had been absent, I think, right, for so like in, long. In Hunting, uh, they had a moment yeah, yeah. of solidarity and it echoed that, um, just kind of them sticking up for the other, for, for no personal gain themselves, um, which is rare to see in the show called Succession. Yeah, but, but but at the same, the same time, it, it it does speak to the just deep bleakness. Uh, if we are seeing Tom perform something, uh, you know, an utterly selfless act, 
Uh, we know how far down on his rope he yeah. must be on that uh, case to, to see him. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, genuine act of kindness. Yeah, we were. Yeah, we we wanted to touch briefly on uh, Greg, who is seemingly still uh, kind of going ahead with this plan of suing Greenpeace. I guess if he wants an inheritance, there's not much left to him except to sue Greenpeace at this point. Uh, So, what choice does he have? Uh, But uh, there is sort of there is sort of an ominous scene when Tom comes back from his late night meeting with uh, with Ken and sees Greg being hoisted aloft by the frat bros at the summit. And that that scene is uh, just kind of shot very I mean, we're we're in kind of Tom's headspace there, but it's shot very ominously. Mm -hmm. It it was an interesting kind of contrast to I know, Jeremy, you were here for safe room um, when Greg uh, I, I bl- when when Tom get, is about to see Sid, and I believe Greg calls out uh, Tom for like being against. He's he like I'm against racism, et cetera, et cetera. And here we kind of saw the role <laughs> reversal, where Greg is now being the one. I mean, Greg has always been flexible, willing to do whatever's best for him. But um, it, it did remind me of that uh, the scene and in safe room when greg tried to call out tom um and and the choices that atn makes in their uh you know programming um as having some kind of values and here we see (laughs) uh, he's willing to you know throw those values out the door and lift it up by as i think tom calls them white supremacists yeah greg being greg being lifted aloft how much higher can he go right <laughs> that was uh it was it was definitely one for the the rise of greg supercut that we'll see on youtube someday uh you know uh yeah just this was definitely a banner episode in the kind of the the great becoming of greg uh as it were so yeah it's, it's, <laughs> can you yeah, expand on that the, jeremy <laughs> scoring the montage to uh strong as i am and the prime movies you know. <laughs> Yeah, this that yeah that just reminds me of God. I I really do spend too much time on the Succession subreddit, but there's uh, basically when it, but whenever somebody's posting uh, posting a complaint about how the season's going, I automatically look to see if they compare it to Breaking Bad because then I know I can just write off anything that they say. Um, I do <laughs> I do wonder if there are people watching it just thinking like this is the episode where Greg became Heisenberg or whatever. They're just looking for that. Okay, Brendan, you cancel me for being gatekeeping. This is it. <laughs> but but I mean it does raise the it does raise the question you know does Greg still have values uh, he does try to take that stand against Connor or at least show some kind of discomfort with what's happening in the royal suite as they choose the president and really for me it makes the it, it made me think is you know it possible to have values in this environment they're thrown into. Um, well, whenever people kind of invoke having sort of like personal values in this show, it's always to sort of be like, you know, <laughs> R.I.P. your company, but I'm different. Right, right. Know, it's uh, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 uh, yeah, we did want to talk about the Ken stuff because, you know, it's, we're, we're sort of comparing or at least I'm mentally comparing Shiv and Ken a lot uh, in this episode because I think Ken is doing. Uh, at least as about as badly as Shiv is, but it's not really clear how much Ken is conscious of that or how much he's suppressing that. 
um, the uh, you know the mania that we've seen Ken going through in recent episodes uh, is really starting to result in a very kind of like strung out looking Jeremy Strong. We still we we haven't seen like any off screen substance abuse or anything in this episode, but he does sort of have this like almost like very like haggard look to him in this episode where he's, he he does feel like he's sort of reaching uh the end of his rope physically although he doesn't quite seem to be uh, i think uh, cognizant of that um he's 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 tamping that pretty deep down sure yeah watching with my mom uh for the preview for next week and she's like oh no is he gonna relapse and i was like mom why do you think he hasn't been using this entire time just because we haven't seen it off screen uh, but as longtime listeners know, you know, I've been a big member of the Kendall Hive for a lack of a better way to say it. But it's been a really difficult season for me to root for Kendall in any which way. Um, we're really only seeing his worst attributes. He's a total self-obsessed asshole and egotistical maniac who's willing to destroy anyone in his way. And that's not to say he hasn't been in previous seasons. But... Um, there's no real ongoing abuse that we witness to, you know, from from Logan or from anyone. No antagonism uh, to kind of buffer the audience's view um, and kind of, you know, draw in some empathy or sympathy. We just see him acting like a total jackass for no real reason, co-opting woke language, pretending that this is all of that he's doing all of this, you know, for a better world. And and you know, it's. It's been rough. Yeah, I, I like have walked away saying fuck Kendall this season, and and that's pretty surprising. We'll see. The Kendall Hive is in absolute shambles this season. They're not doing that's well. right. The whole sequence where uh, he, um, uh, you know, he has that uh, sort of deposition with the Justice Department, and uh, he makes a spectacle of himself. It seems to go poorly. He makes a point to call the lawyers uh, chicken shit, uh, where they can hear him. And then sort of seems like smugly proud of himself, like oh that that that, that are a lot of fire under their ass. Um, yeah, right. You're you know, scared of my dad, and that scared, that's gonna do it. Scared of my dad, and then that whole exchange with Lisa again. We haven't seen you know a, a ton of Sanaa Lathan's uh, Lisa Arthur, uh, but this this may end up being the last time we see her, as it appears that after she gives Ken some straight talk, still pretty diplomatic because I think she wants to hang on to him as a client and is aware that he has a fragile ego, but gives him some straight talk about his poor performance in the deposition, uh, there's, a, there's a hard cut to the next scene where he's saying, okay, uh, Lisa's done. Uh, she was a toxic person. You know, Toxic person. <laughs> she was a toxic person. Please. And there's that great line where he, uh, where he sort of uh, dismissively uh, says to Lisa, well, you know, everything is political. And, you know, it's such like a, like a fake, dumb, smart guy cliche uh, for him to toss out just to sound kind of savvier than he is. Uh, but especially it's, it's striking that he says that to Lisa, who's not only this lawyer who's implied to be very savvy, it's sort of like the intersections of sort of political issues and, you know, media representation and, of course, uh, the legal system, uh, but also that he's saying this to one of the very few black characters on the show. Um, I thought that was I thought that was very I thought it was very pointed and not accidental that the show sets up uh, that exchange and also shows that Ken is unable to take even the slightest bit of pushback um, from somebody who has his best interests at heart. What really struck me about that is she wasn't, she was going gentle on him and being, you know, pretty, um, 
you using euphemisms and he's like what you can say it went bad and she was so gentle you know that's again why i'm saying fuck ken but also i mean not only saying that to a black woman everything is political but then firing the black woman obviously he does not understand that everything is political Right, right. It's a uh, yeah. They 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 couldn't show him firing her on screen because that would have been I think just too on the nose. Uh, but yeah, that's that's definitely a joke the show is making. Right. Even the day before, um, when he's doing the practice deposition in her office, like he he's so arrogant and he has that comment about like um, yeah, well they're government employees. How smart can they be? Um, and it's just. Um, yeah, another <laughs> really, really I'm rough not... moment to be yeah. Ken Hive and try and root for Ken. And and she's like, you know, trying to break down the case to him. The fact that, you know, Waystar has put in um, all this effort to, to fight back the DOJ and to cooperate. Uh, the papers are not as explosive as, you know, they might have thought. And he tells her to try harder. Um, it's so condescending. It's really terrible and and yeah i i don't think um it's a coincidence that she is a a black woman and last week i mean speaking of his elitism you know we get the oh they're from tampa talking about yeah. the bagels um a lot of uh, yeah i don't want to shit where the the staff go in rava's apartment exactly um, yep it's been this recurring be really theme. really gross mm-hmm. yeah while and while the irony is this season he's supposed to be the woke you know change maker exactly and, and actually he's everything but yeah i do wonder if there's sort of an intentional parallel and in, again the kind of like frat boy republicans we see at the future freedom summit and the just really odd disgusting chorus of yes men that just sort of materialize in uh ken's penthouse uh when he's yeah. returning to uh uh you know give comfrey and jess their marching orders it's really funny how um comfrey's job just kind of keeps getting worse in like every successive episode <laughs> as just like discovering how crazy this guy is i mean like i'm sure this is like not a new experience for like a high-powered pr agent um to just constantly be bailing a rich maniac uh, out of a mess that they've created for themselves um but yeah that's a it's, it's a good kind of like funny running gag is her just kind of like wide-eyed like you know, t- having to type like the worst email she's ever written, and as Ken gives her some disastrous bit of bad news, we were we were joking earlier that it would be uh, about a, a hypothetical like really offline Succession fan who uh, you know Google's uh, Google's uh, Dasha and goes, oh, Comfrey has a podcast. Wow, <laughs> wonder what it's about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just a really big Comfrey fan. I just want to see what she does next. It's it's fascinating to imagine a a offline succession fan because this is a this is a this was this is very twitter season and this is very twitter episode of a very twitter season mm-hmm. you know and kendall all season long has really been posting through it so mm-hmm. i don't know if you're really going to get the full context of succession uh if you don't know what the uh you know succession likes uh you know cosmopolitans are, are you know presenting themselves as on twitter yeah yeah, to my it's to my true. great chagrin, we've we found that that, <laughs> that analysis actually does come in handy uh, quite a bit in this season. I just think there's one final scene, the Tom and Kendall scene, we need to kind of dig into just a little bit before we wrap it up. Oh, no, absolutely. We do have another diner scene. Uh, where Tom makes another order of you know disgusting breakfast food or whatever at the middle of the night. Um, but it's a high priority for Ken to meet with Tom. 
because this is basically the only thing his case has at this point after the sort of dour assessment that Lisa gave of his prospects of what uh, damage the papers can really do. You know, it's not a slam dunk, I think she says. So Tom, so, so his best bet, Ken's, if he wants to win this case and take down his father, is to get somebody to flip. And he decides his best prospect is Tom. And so he arranges this rendezvous where he meets him at the diner and tries to make his case for him to flip by talking about, you know, how bad a future Tom is staring down. You know, you're going to go to prison soon. And do you really think that your wife who you fell in love with is going to be there for you uh, on the other side? Um, I mean, the thing that was most striking to me about that scene was just the assessment that Tom gives at the end when he says, you know, my, my feeling is that you're going to get fucked because you seem to get fucked a lot. And I've never seen Logan get fucked once um, I thought that was just a, a very sort of like neat encapsulation of sort of the arc of the series and, uh, you know, an, a, a principle about how people respond to power. Sure. I, I mean, that was like incredibly powerful and what a way to cut him to size. But it was after a, a full scene of Ken trying to cut Tom to size, which I thought was interesting, um, kind of digging in at every insecurity, you know, you're a long way from home, you're far from the tree. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Sure. You're, you felt, he says, I fell in love with Shiv. Um, and she's sure, sure. The country house and the hot Molly, you're just what a tall glass of water and really questioning Tom on his motives. Um, and whether or not, you know, what angle he did have. We know he grew up reading Vanity Fair with his mom and wanting this lifestyle. And I found it interesting that, again, kind of, um, I don't know how much we've talked about Ken kind of turning into Logan, but um, this is another opportunity where uh, he kind of does that. He takes the person he's talking to and hits like every insecurity they possibly have Brendan, as you mentioned, you know, even will Shiv still be around? He knows exactly the buttons to push and he pushes him. Yeah. And he says that like he could um, sort of it would be uh, like a masculine move to to defect from the family and he could show Shiv like who's the fucking man, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really preying on his insecurities. Yeah. Yeah, it really made me think about Ken's own decision to betray his father at, um, you know, at the press conference. And if that was the thinking, I mean, obviously it was. He said, you know, Logan says you're not a killer. And that seems to be one of the motivators. And he's kind of using that against Tom. You know, you want to be the alpha? She will follow. She'll appreciate you for doing your own thing. And exactly that, Gabby. Uh, his insecurities of being a tough guy. And again, I don't think Ken is wrong there either, but it's no. quite gross yeah. that he right. has the same yes. sort of like understanding of the insecurities that his father has uh, has, has placed in his daughter. I know, absolutely. It's, it, exactly. It's another reason why I'm just like disgusted by Ken. You know, <laughs> it, it's just one thing after another of him not having the kind of empathy we had for him at the beginning of the show. But it's very fascinating that th- this was really enough to finally pull Tom out of his kind of, uh, you know, disassociative Mm. spiral, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, This was honestly one of my, probably one of my favorite scenes of the uh, season, if not the series, just because uh, I love any season where, any scene where 
Tom can, you know, wring a little bit of meager triumph uh, out, out of his uh, otherwise Tom-like life, uh, you know. So, yeah, I, I think this was just a really fantastic scene, this kind of, you know, uh, De Niro, Pacino, and Heat showdown between the two at the diner. <laughs> uh, and I... I, I I'm 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 really going to be interested to see though if 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 Tom is able to take anything from this in in the episodes to come, but uh, most likely not, as he is uh, you know Tom, and that is his lot in life. But it was a very interesting ending point between them, that's for sure. Yeah, I was just thinking about how Tom was sort of always there, not necessarily taking action or making big moves, but how much he sort of observes and how much distance he has just by nature well the distance he has from his wife recently and by being in this kind of second class position within the family he does seem in that conversation to have a bit uh more clarity than one might think um you know it's just very unexpected i think surprising scene and a surprising dynamic between the two of them tom being a little bit more confident than you might think and ken being a little bit crueler more bullying and more ruthless than we've seen in the past yeah i mean whipping out the camera phone and taking the pictures that was straight out of the logan play that's right really played very very grossly yeah certainly yeah well next week we've got uh his really uh disgusting gaudy sounding birthday party uh the teaser certainly seems to portend some kind of you know, a uh, big crash, big collapse that's coming. Um, how does he describe the theme he wants? Weimar meets Carthage meets AI meets Dante meets antibiotic resistant superbug, which is like, I mean, if I'm an event planner hearing that, I'm like, yep, got it. No notes. Um, <laughs> he's calling well, it. He's it, calling it, it, it any it, times, it, which is. It, it's, we, we referenced it earlier on. It's it's uh, my beautiful twisted dark fantasy. That's he, he's in his Kanye phase. You know, that's that's what he's heading for. <laughs> right. Oh, that, well, that, well, what's okay, uh, yeah, what's the um, what's, what's the Kanye <laughs> album that Ken is uh, that this season represents for Ken? This is you think this is eight oh eight? Eight oh eight. Jesus. No, it's my beautiful. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. I think it's my I, I beautiful so. dark season two was his fantasy. Uh, but this is <laughs> this is my beautiful twisted dark fantasy all the way. Yeah, yep. looking forward to the Jesus is King season. <laughs> 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 I really want the yay. That's personally just me. I, I like think seven the Jesus songs. is King season has the most uh, interesting potential for the show. Although I don't know, I did love Donda, guys. I haven't heard the new five songs released, but Donda, he's back, baby. Well, it's got, it's it's got Grammy nominations, so it must be good. That's an interesting kind of thought experiment uh, to a, a sort of like religious. Uh, maybe they just like transpose the whole show to like a southern gothic uh, for one season or something um, you just imagine the show like Archer like one of those later Archer seasons where it's like okay they're in space for a season or they're pirates for a season um, I think I think they could probably pull that off I can't stop thinking about sure. Jail either part one or part two now uh, just kind of like being the soundtrack for Kendall this season <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys have listened to Donda maybe not no, but I will now to uh, um, be, to keep up with the Grammys and to be mm-hmm. in the conversation as Ken would want. Um, <laughs> okay, well, that'd be, I think um, I, I guess that about covers it uh, for this episode. I think yeah, we're all definitely. I think hopefully we've purged some of the uh, the bad vibes that were sort of circulating at the the beginning of this episode. Um, 
but uh, we're, we're definitely due, I think, for some catharsis. This is a show that, as circular as the patterns are, it does believe, I think, in the big moment, in the big, expressive, cathartic climax. And uh, I think we're, we're, we're due for one. We're getting close. Um, so looking forward to next Oof. week. Let's, uh, let's go around and say uh, any stray moments from this episode that we liked that we haven't discussed yet. Kate? Speaking of spirals, I really enjoyed the shot uh, at the beginning, like five minutes in, when Kendall's going down the spiral staircase and it looks never-ending. Just kind of reminded me of the situation they're in. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always always uh, pretty sly with the, the cinematography on the show. Yeah. I know we came to market for a milk call, which was a, a Roman says, but we got a T-Rex. That was a fun callback to the Thanksgiving episode, right, as we're approaching yeah. Thanksgiving. I liked both of those. Gabby, anything for you? Um, Roman saying to Greg, yeah, you got to vote at the election <laughs> with all the other folks. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and also um, Tom talking about how... Um, Rasputin uh, would um, put a little bit of arsenic in his food every day to prepare. It was just very uh, classic Tom, the way he delivered it. Oh, God. So many good lines in this episode. Jeremy, a favorite line or moment that we didn't talk about? I, I Honestly, I was just delighted to see Mark Lynn Baker back because I, I think the idea of Connor Roy having a, a friend is a very poignant concept. So so, so, so that moved <laughs> me. Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah, Connor's friend. It's a it's a great that's a yeah. great position uh, to be. It's it, 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 just those two words have a kind of cellar door energy to them, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm I'm trying to choose between my favorite lines in this episode. I I, I was really fond of Tom talking about uh, his food, the diner, saying it's like it's like Afghanistan. You have to establish a base. Um, <laughs> uh, but then I also had a Roman line when he called Ken to say, "Hey, new dad just." Oh dropped. yeah, that was great. Um, that was. <laughs> It's, it's so stupid, but yeah, God, a lot of good Roman lines in this one. Jeremy, yeah. it's always a delight to talk to you about TV. I'm so glad we were able to make it happen again. Um, anything to plug? Where can folks find you and your commentary? Uh, you can find me at Jeremy Monjo on Twitter. Uh, uh, and, and that's just about it. Yeah, no. Uh, that's, uh, I'm, I'm just a Twitter guy. Yeah. But a high quality one. Oh, Everyone ten, always ten, says he's one of my favorite posters. So, ten K, baby, ten K. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> from from all all blocks. No, it's true. Yeah, you have, like. have crossover. Yeah. I mean, for four quadrant appeal. That's right. Uh, good to know. I, I have some pseudo con heads, mon heads, I guess. Yeah, out there. <laughs> the mon heads. The mon heads. Yeah. <laughs> Well, folks, uh, thank you for listening. Those of you who are celebrating the holidays, we wish you um, a happy holiday. For those of you around the world, we thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks again to Jeremy. Thanks to Kate and Gabby. Thanks to our producer, Dan Black. If you are enjoying the Roycast, we would so appreciate if you would take a few seconds of your day to give us a rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We so appreciate the folks who have already done so. We will be back next week to discuss episode seven of this season of Succession as we wind our way uh, towards the close and towards another successionless season, which almost doesn't do to think about, but the Roycast will be there with you to see it through to the end. Until then, everybody, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>